I wonder if you might for us recall the the early days of the peace movement uh, right after the first world uh, the second world war you were a member of Einstein's emergency committee of atomic scientists uh, one of the really first efforts that's right I got interested in world peace really in 1945 I had been working during the Second World War and for a little while earlier than that, a year or two earlier, on uh, war projects. I still was professor chairman of the Division of Chemistry and Chemical Engineering in California Institute of Technology, but I had about 20 uh, contracts with the Office of Scientific Research and Development. Oppenheimer asked me to come to Los Alamos as the head of the chemistry section of the atomic bomb project, and I decided not to do it. I had so much going on in Pasadena, including uh, continuing teaching chemistry and this large amount of war work. When the atomic bombs were dropped, uh, exploded over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945, uh, I was very soon asked by some service club, Rotary Club in Hollywood, to talk about nuclear fission, about the nature of these weapons. Uh, I was able to do so because I had not been connected with the Atomic Energy Project and had no classified information about these weapons. So I began uh, giving talks uh, to popular talks to groups of that sort, which were purely educational, descriptive in nature with little political content. Rather soon, they began to involve also an expression of my own ideas, and I don't remember just how early it was that I was able to quote Albert Einstein as saying that now that a single bomb, atomic bomb, can destroy a whole city, uh, and a, a single rocket can lob it over, the time has come when we must give up war. But then I was asked uh, to join the board of trustees of the Einstein Committee, the Emergency Committee of Atomic Scientists, uh, which consisted only of the board of trustees, uh, half a dozen scientists, uh, Albert Einstein as chairman, and uh, Harold Urey, as vice chairman. So every few months I went with my wife to Princeton to a meeting of this board uh, and uh, later on uh, I took uh, made uh, began making lecture tours uh, partially along with Leo Szilard. We would show a film which the committee had had made uh, the, probably the first film about atomic bombs explaining what nuclear war would be, just the little atomic bombs, Hiroshima, Nagasaki type then. And uh, Leo Zillard would give a talk and I would speak too about uh, the necessity to understand what had happened in the world now that the means of waging war had changed in such an astounding Way. And, and very early on, you were advocating against the production of the hydrogen bomb, even in the late 40s. That's right. right. I uh, opposed the construction of the hydrogen bomb on the 
I think, rather reasonable grounds that uh, an ordinary atomic bomb could destroy a whole city, and uh, even the biggest cities that could do much damage, perhaps kill a million people out of the 10 million in a large city, and that there was no need to make uh, to accelerate the arms race by developing weapons a thousand times more powerful. How, how important was the fact that, that you were and had not really been in government service? Do you think that made it easier for you to draw some of these conclusions and to speak publicly about them? Yes, well, of course, I had, in a sense, been in government service in that uh, I took leave one summer from the Institute in order to go to the Central Explosives Research Laboratory. This would be during the war? During, or the, war, during the war. During the war. Uh, and I had a large number of government contracts that I was responsible for. But I didn't have classified information about atomic bombs, and I could uh, talk about them as freely as I wanted, I thought. After my first talk, uh, I think uh, the second day after my first talk, uh, an FBI man turned up in my office and said, uh, how did you, who gave you information about how much uh, plutonium or uranium-235 there is in an atomic bomb? And I said, nobody. <laughs> I figured it out. Um, so uh, I wasn't bothered thereafter. But if I had had classified information, we can see that I might well have been restrained from speaking in public about the need to get control over war the way that I was speaking. And over the, the next decade and a half, both you and your wife were very active in lecturing and in holding conferences and, and petitioning the government and, and making known to the public, really, the issues involved in these new weapons. Yes, that's right. My wife uh, had been interested in social, political, and economic problems ever since she was a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. She used to argue with in Salem, Oregon, where she was going to high school with a friend of the family, one of the judges of the Oregon State Supreme Court, mm -hmm. of which my uncle became a chief justice later on. She didn't know him until after. Well, she did actually know him before we were married. He was a friend of her family in right. Oregon City, Oregon. But 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 uh, she she I gather was was very supportive and and in fact would direct a lot of her speeches to the the women's perspective on these issues. Is that yes, yeah. that's right. And of course uh, I uh, have I have said and I have to say that I'm sure that if I had not <coughs> married her, I would not have had the. Uh, that aspect of my career that I have had of working for world peace. It was her uh, influence on me and her continued support that caused me to continue. In fact, I have said that during the McCarthy period, when many people, especially scientists who had been following approximately the same course that I was following, gave up, I continued because I had to retain the respect of my wife. 
And what, 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 what drove her? Was it her, her academic background or her, her kind of humanistic concern about the fate of the world? Well, I think largely her humanistic concerns. She had had some training as a chemist, and during the Second World War, she worked for a couple of years as assistant to uh, Professor Hagen-Smith on a war project of developing Guayule rubber. She worked as a chemist, but her, and she had an interest, general interest in science, and was very able, very smart, but uh, she was really concerned about uh, human beings, her, the humanistic concern. Uh, that she had was very great. And, and in the, the, the lectures uh, that, that you both gave, they were very similar to what we're seeing today uh, being done by the physicians for uh, a social responsibility on a, a larger scale. I mean, uh, an exposure of the public to really the horrors of nuclear war in, in ways that they had never seen. Yes, but when you say on a larger scale, I'm not even sure of that because we gave hundreds of lectures right. about world peace and there were other people too, Norman Cousins uh, mm -hmm. giving a great number of lectures. There was great activity 25 years ago in this field. Right. And, and one of, one of, in one of the, the, the petitions that was signed by uh, 52 Nobel Prize winners, the, the Manu uh, document of July 15, 1959, 55, I noticed there was a sentence that in the petition we, we think it is a delusion if governments believe uh, that they can avoid war for a long time through the fear of these weapons. Uh, all nations must come to the decision to renounce force as a final resort of policy. Was that a, a criticism of, of deterrence, of the notion that, of deterrence that was emerging, or? Well, it may be that it was. I wasn't at Minow that year. I have gone to Minow where there are meetings of Nobel laureates from right. time, every year, in fact. I wasn't there. I signed this statement, but I wasn't involved in writing it. I believe, and I continue to believe, that uh, the deterrent effect of nuclear weapons is very important. Uh, here, uh, in 1961, the uh, Soviet Union exploded in the atmosphere a, a single three-stage nuclear weapon uh, that was a 60 megaton bomb uh, with explosive power equal to 60 million tons of TNT. That's 10 times the explosive power of all of the bombs used in the whole of the Second World War in this one explosion. Mm -hmm. And these bombs exist by the thousands. Uh, not so many, there, I don't know that there are any other 60 megaton bombs because there's no target worthy of one, but there are 20 megaton bombs and many one megaton bombs around, uh, roughly equal to the Second World War in a single bomb. The uh, feeling that uh, I had and many other people that the existence of these stockpiles of terribly destructive weapons that, if used, would certainly destroy civilization as we know it and might well wipe out the human race, meant that the great powers must not get involved in a war with one another. 
My own feeling then and now is, as expressed in the report by the Boston group, Philip Morrison and his associates, and the report called The Price of Defense, issued about four years ago, is that uh, the nuclear deterrent should be reduced from its present completely insane level to a somewhat less irrational level. Mm-hmm. But I think we don't, we shouldn't get rid of it entirely and tempt the great powers to go back to old-fashioned wars with one another, with conventional weapons and with uh, 20 million people killed in the First World War, 40 million in the Second World War, perhaps 60 million in the, or, or 80 million in the Third World War fought with conventional weapons. Why take that chance? Well, uh, I believe in the nuclear deterrent, but it's just got out of hand, and we continue to waste money on it instead of stabilizing it. Were were charges made against you that you were for unilateral disarmament? I mean, in a a public debate, there tends to be such a distortion of views that are so uh, different from the conventional wisdom as yours were in the the 50s. I... I think that there were some irresponsible statements about me to the effect that I was working for uh, disarming the United States, uh, that I was uh, taken in by Soviet propaganda and that sort of thing. And of course, uh, I was speaking out for a while, contrary to the official opinion. Uh, If we had had a dictatorship, Uh, in this country, I might well have been accused of the crime of uh, seditious libel, Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, is used in dictatorships to suppress criticism. Seditious libel uh, consists in making statements critical of government policy. That's sedition in a dictatorship. Well, you know, when I was awarded the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, in 1963, uh, Life magazine published an editorial with the uh, heading, uh, A Weird Insult from Norway. Uh, The Norwegian (laughs) Nobel Committee awards the peace prizes. Well, I think that the writer of this editorial thought that it was insulting to give the peace prize to someone who advocated something that was not the official policy of the United States government. And and indeed, when when uh, you circulated a 58 uh, petition, which was signed by uh, 2,000 American scientists and I think 8,000 foreign scientists from 49 different countries, there there was a a government... uh, uh, harassment. There was harassment in the press of you for uh, uh, undertaking this effort, really, and, and charges of, uh, of of working for the enemy, really. Is that is that not correct? Well, to some extent, yes. And uh, I was given. Uh, I first announced that two thousand American scientists had signed the petition asking for uh, a cessation of the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere where they were liberating radioactive fallout over the uh, whole world that would cause defective children to be born and to damage living people. 
to living human beings causing cancer and other diseases. And I, uh, we ask that uh, the nations make an agreement to stop the testing of nuclear weapons. At that time, uh, this, the government policy was not to make this treaty. It had not yet been decided, but uh, pretty soon it was decided to make such a treaty. I think that I got a good bit of support, but uh, some criticism also. Here, I had written this petition together with Barry Commoner and uh, Ed Condon. Ed Condon is a Berkeley man who was at that time professor of physics in, uni in Washington University, uh, Barry Commoner, professor of biology in Washington University, St. Louis. We circulated the petition. I decided later to, well, uh, people from foreign countries, scientists from foreign countries began to send in copies, signed copies of the petition. So uh, my wife and I circulated it in uh, foreign countries and ultimately turned over 13,000 signatures of scientists to the Secretary General, Doug Hammarskjöld of the United Nations. And on, on another occasion when you were in the Soviet Union, you, you actually uh, wrote a letter to Khrushchev which included a, a draft treaty which I gather was very similar to the, the partial test ban which was eventually adopted in 63. Yes, yes. I didn't get to talk with uh, Premier Khrushchev uh, then. There was an uh, appointment set up for me and then it was canceled and it's hard to know uh, why things of this sort are done. But in fact, uh, in 1961, which is when this occurred, uh, my wife and I asked, we were there for a scientific congress, biochemical congress, but we said we would like to speak at a peace meeting, a public meeting. The, uh, the Soviet Peace Committee put out posters announcing the meeting and we went to it uh, in a hall the Hall of the Scientists in Moscow that holds a thousand people. We had a film along, the peace movement in Southern California, showing a demonstration. Mm. Two or three thousand people, perhaps more, marching with banners and a meeting in a park and my speaking to them. And uh, then my wife talked and then I talked. And I said, the Soviet Union has just exploded this 60 megaton bomb. And that, I think, uh, I estimate, will cause a million children to be born over a course of generations, because these gene mutations last are passed on. A million children to be born with gross physical or mental defect that would not have been defective otherwise and will cause perhaps just as many people uh, to develop cancer or another disease. And I think it's immoral, unethical for nations to do this damage to the human race. I think that was the last atomic bomb that they exploded, but uh, I'm not sure. At any rate, uh, the bomb test treaty negotiations were going on, and uh, very quickly, next year, the treaty was signed, and it went into effect uh, in October of 1963.
The Nobel Committee, in awarding you the Peace Prize, pointed out that uh, uh, the language uh, uh, that Ke President Kennedy used in his speech uh, uh, announcing the signing of the Partial Tax Ban was very similar uh, to the language that, that you had used in defining the bait, and in fact, the language you just used in, in describing <clears throat> your speech in the Soviet Union. Yes, yes. So, was this an instance of, of, of power listening uh, to science? Uh, I think so. Uh, there was a meeting, a dinner that President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy held for recipients of the Nobel Prize in the Western Hemisphere and some other people. And uh, on the day before, my wife and I, and on the day of the meeting, in fact, had demonstrated outside the White House against the bomb test. This would have been in what year? In 1961, I think, uh, possibly 1960. We, uh, when we came through the reception line, Mrs. Kennedy, after shaking hands with me, said, uh, do you think it is right, Dr. Pauling, uh, to march back and forth with your sign outside the White House so that Caroline says to me, uh, Mummy, what has Daddy done wrong now? <laughs> and then she introduced me to President Kennedy, who said, uh, Dr. Pauling, I hope that you will continue to express your opinions. And of course, I think that it was about at that time that he became convinced that uh, the atmospheric testing of bomb nuclear weapons was really the wrong thing to do and began applying political pressure to the Senate to approve the test ban treaty and uh, well began deciding to uh, instruct his negotiators to uh, to sign the test ban treaty. Do you think if, if he had lived that the, the progress on, uh, on arms control would have been uh, more significant since he had gone through this process of negotiating this treaty and then of course he had gone through the, uh, the Cuban the Missile Crisis? Cuban Missile, yes. yes. Well, he, I think he had the, a real understanding of the significance of nuclear weapons and a very great concern for his responsibility. And of course, I believe that he admired Khrushchev for his restraint. Uh, they handled that missile crisis well. Uh, I think he could understand that if the United States had weapons, uh, the, the feeling by Khrushchev and the other Soviet leaders that if the United States had uh, uh, rockets armed with nuclear warheads in Turkey and other places close to the Soviet Union, why shouldn't the Soviet Union put them in Cuba? But of course it was the wrong thing to do. It's good that uh, there was some restraint over the spread of nuclear weapons. Why has it been so difficult to to bridge this gap uh, uh, between the insights of scientists uh, and the the uh, the the thinking and actions of our political leaders? Because if you if you go through this history of the peace movement in the fifties, there uh, it's as if we're reliving all of this again today. That's right. It looks as though we haven't learned anything yeah. from recent history of twenty five years ago, when the uh, the hydrogen bomb, the three-stage bomb had been developed, the weapons became 
The individual bombs, warheads, became a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima-Nagasaki bombs, 10 or 20,000 times more powerful than the one-ton blockbusters uh, with which most of the bombings were done in the Second World War. The stockpiles had already become irrationally great 25 years ago. Uh, the analysts all talked about a 10,000 megaton attack on the United States and a 10,000 megaton counterattack on the Soviet Union and were making estimates that perhaps 80% of the people would be dead 60 days after the attack. So that the situation now is we still talk about 10,000 megaton attacks. It hasn't changed very much in that respect. The need for detente was clear. And of course, we went through a period of a number of years when the relationship was, was better. But there, was still, uh, there were still changes being made in the development of nuclear weapons, usually with the United States taking the lead, just as we had a five-year lead initially on building atomic bombs. Uh, we introduced the idea of, uh, well, the anti-ballistic missile. This uh, development along these lines was stopped by treaty. That was one case where a good treaty was made between the United States and the Soviet Union. The idea of uh, MIRV, multiple independently directable uh, uh, re-entry yeah, yeah. vehicles uh, with nuclear warheads so that a single big rocket instead of carrying a 20 megaton bomb that would essentially destroy Moscow uh, or any other city uh, would, could be made more effective because there aren't many 20 megaton targets. Uh, instead, it could carry perhaps 16 uh, small rockets, each with its own one megaton bomb, uh, 20 or 25 times as big as a Hiroshima or Nagasaki bomb, big enough for most cities, and uh, with computers and programmed in such a way that uh, 16 different targets could be destroyed. And a few years later, the Soviet Union also uh, they haven't quite caught up with us on merving their big rockets, but they're well on their way. So uh, now we have the cruise missile. And uh, I heard uh, Andropov speak. I was in Moscow the 21st of December, three weeks ago, uh, when a month, nearly a month ago, when Andropov gave his talk uh, in which he uh, said that they were willing to cut down on intermediate-range missiles to the number that the West had, Britain, France, United States, and would continue to cut down if we were willing to cut down. But he went on to become very tough then. I suppose he has to, uh, under the circumstances, uh, with a tough opponent in the United States. And he said that they were well on their way toward completing the development of their own cruise missile. If we went ahead with our 7,000 cruise missiles, very dangerous business, they would soon have an equal number. So the but race has gone on. They, in they're in going to, yes. 
He said they would keep up with us. Of course, uh, Reagan, President Reagan says, we'll keep ahead of the Soviet Union. Uh, what is going to happen if these two great nations are not able to get enough sense to stop this waste of money and this increasing of the danger of a nuclear war breaking out. As these weapons become, and the delivery vehicles, the whole system uh, become more and more complicated, the chance that there will be a technological or psychological accident that initiates the catastrophic interchange of these uh, terribly destructive weapons uh, becomes greater and greater so that we get in more and more danger that a nuclear war will break out. When the world is destroyed, it'll be by accident, not by design, not by the direct decision of Reagan or Andropov, but by accident. But why then have, have the politicians, uh, the political leaders on both sides, fail to heed the warnings uh, about these dangers? Uh, when one goes through this history or reads your, your very good book, uh, No More War, published in 1958, you find that, that the issues have been on the table uh, right. since, since early times. Uh, the arguments in my book are essentially the same. I talked about a, a 20,000 megaton bomb war, 20,000 megaton war, 10,000 from each side there, and that's what we still uh, talk about. And the other uh, dangers and the need for uh, making the world a safer place. The arguments are still just as good 25 years after this book was uh, published. And uh, why haven't we got control? Well, uh, the Soviet Union, first the people and the government to uh, fear war. They don't want to have a war. They are afraid also of attack by the Western powers. They are afraid of the anti-communism that we know exists upon the express statement that we are out to destroy communism. And uh, they are more afraid than we are because they know what war is. There were 50 times as many people in the Soviet Union killed in the uh, Second World War as Americans killed in the Second World War. They experienced the destruction of their own uh, country. So uh, I think that they feel that they have to try to keep up with the United States and not tempt our militarists. Now, our position uh, has been made pretty clear uh, year after year or decade after decade from 30 years ago that uh, our gross national product is twice that of the Soviet Union. We fear communism, but communism will take over the world. Uh, well, as Khrushchev said, uh, they say communism is so good a system that it's inevitable that it take over, and we don't uh, agree with that. But So we fear communism and uh, think that we must prevent the takeover. Our, uh, we are twice as affluent as the Soviet Union, have twice the gross national product of the Soviet Union. The burden of militarism, even if it were great for us, would be twice as great for them. Uh, President Reagan issued a few months ago a national security directive uh, that uh, repeats the statement that we must 
apply uh, economic pressure, uh, military pressure, diplomatic pressure, propagandistic pressure on the Soviet Union with the hope of eliminating it from the world. In fact, he said to the, in June, I think it was, he spoke to the British Parliament in London mm -hmm. and said that by applying this pressure, uh, we uh, ultimately sh shall achieve the goal of uh, leaving Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history. I'm quoting President Reagan. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a goal, that of applying pressure by increasing military expenditures until finally they become intolerable for the Soviet Union. I read one statement by a commentator back in Connecticut who said uh, President Reagan's plan that uh, by spending, our spending 1.6 trillion dollars on militarism in the next uh, five years uh, to bankrupt the Soviet Union uh, already in its first year has come close, has brought the United States to the verge of bankruptcy, not only economically, but also uh, morally and spiritually. So that what the, the politicians didn't learn from the scientists was to go beyond this notion that victory is still possible. Is that what you're suggesting? I mean, that, that they believe that by building up uh, nuclear weapons, they can uh, not necessarily have to go to nuclear war, but uh, will be in a position to keep the other party down, and then by simultaneously applying economic screws, possibly even break the system. So that the politicians haven't written, really gotten over uh, these uh, old ways of thinking that, that Einstein and, and, and others warned they, they really would have to move beyond. Is That's that right. They, they haven't recognized that this is just too dangerous a policy uh, to follow. And I am sure that President Reagan and his advisors do not anticipate that there will be a nuclear war. I'm sure that they don't believe the statement that they made last year, that we might uh, carry on a limited nuclear war in Europe and still not destroy the world. I'm sure they don't believe that. That was just propaganda to get the American people to accept the whole idea of continuing the military buildup and increase in the military budget at the same time that we're having trouble with uh, uh, the parts of the budget that relate to the well-being of the American uh, people. Uh, the, uh, this is just propaganda. They don't think that we can have... I have said that, uh, well, perhaps a limited war in Europe would be all right. It wouldn't get any objection because the Soviet Union wouldn't be harmed. They wouldn't complain. We wouldn't be harmed. We wouldn't complain. Uh, the, the European nations wouldn't complain because they wouldn't exist any longer. <laughs> well, of course, the fact is that even a limited war uh, with the radioactive fallout, the dust thrown up in the air that might uh, uh, prevent the sun shining through for long times, uh, smoke from the forest fires that uh, uh, might hinder uh, the 
growth of plant life on the surface of the earth, all over the earth for, for months or years. The, and the radioactive fallout spread all over the world. The carbon-14 that has a half-life of 5,070 years and uh, continues to damage human beings would continue if they existed for thousands, tens of thousands of years. These, uh, these effects, uh, even in a limited nuclear war, uh, involving, say, only a thousand times or a hundred times the uh, explosive power of the Second World War uh, might well mean the end of the human race. So uh, we need to have a change in thinking uh, that Einstein talked about. And, and why, why, I still want to understand why this hasn't come about. In other words, did, did these efforts of, of the 50s and early 60s fail to win the bulk of public opinion in this country? I mean, did, did, did the issues sort of recede into the background and, and more immediate issues like the Vietnam War, for example, or so on? Because when you go through this material from the period when you were so actively involved, so much of it uh, resonates with what we're hearing now, and and in, in some ways it's bothersome that it's as if we haven't learned the lessons That's that right. were clear from the, the very You know, beginning. statements, we were making statements of this sort, especially when the stockpiles of nuclear weapons got up to 600 megatons, 100 times the, this was very early, 100 times the Second World War, and uh, it seemed it already was irrational to have such destructive power. Then they got to 6,000, perhaps even to 60,000. Estimates now are usually around 30,000 uh, as the total stockpiles, but uh, that order of magnitude uh, it is really, as Philip Morrison said, insane mm -hmm. for human, the human race to have developed the powers of self-destruction to this level. And why? Well, back 25 years ago, 20 years ago, the bomb test treaty went into effect. This was a victory. It looked as though there was some sanity coming into the situation. There was a period of detente. And uh, then, of course, the decision was made to uh, contain communism by participating in the war in Korea and then in Vietnam. Not very successful efforts uh, to contain uh, communism, and the wrong kind, I think. Uh, how much money we waste on militarism in the world, something like $600 billion a year, equal to the total income of more than half of the people in the world. Uh, terrible waste. Think of what good could be done if we were not to expend so much money. There are great problems to be solved in the world, to be attacked. The problem of overpopulation, the problem just of feeding people is going to be more and more serious one. Encroachment on the environment, uh, uh, possible catastrophe from damage to the ozone layer, and, and so on. And uh, we aren't cooperating in solving them. The United States and the Soviet Union even if they were to be cooperating in solving these problems, would have and will have in the future uh, a pretty difficult time. And when they are fighting each other, 
in the way that they are and wasting money on militarism, senseless militarism, there's not much chance of solving these other problems. I'm asked from time to time, am I hopeful? And I say I am. I, I believe that we are going to get through this difficult period that we are in, that uh, rationality will come into the conduct of world affairs. And I have evidence. If I weren't hopeful, why should I be spending my time going around making television, television interviews and giving uh, talks, popular talks, and traveling around uh, uh, working for world peace? If I didn't think we'd succeed, I might as well be enjoying myself reading the physical and chemical literature and trying to solve some of the interesting problems about nuclear structure and electro mag uh, molecular structure and even about uh, uh, the vitamins and uh, their interaction with human body, the, the human body, and uh, trying to find some way of decreasing the amount of suffering caused by disease. So I I believe that we're going to be successful. The fact that uh, I believe 25 years ago that we were going to be successful rather soon doesn't keep me from believing now that we're going to be successful. And the fact that there hasn't been a war between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 25 years leads me to believe that the nuclear deterrent really does work. It does work. It's insanely high, overdeveloped, uh, but it works. And uh, the danger is that uh, it will cease to work because of some accident. Because, and this would be the result of our poor sense in continuing to make the system more and more complicated instead of trying to simplify it and getting it under control. In uh, your book, uh, No More No More War, uh, you you discuss how science had become the handmaiden of war, uh, really uh, helped uh, to think about war, to define uh, new instruments of warfare, and to to define new strategies. And you proposed uh, uh, in that book uh, uh, that uh, science more and more become a handmaiden of peace, really. Uh, that that uh, uh, an international research organization for peace studies uh, that uh, would deal with many of the problems you just discussed should be uh, instituted and so on. I, I wonder if, if you might reflect on that now. As you probably know, the University of California is going through a process now of evaluating what it should be doing in, in the realm of peace studies and so on. And I wonder yeah. if you would share your thoughts with us on that issue. Well, there are a number of rather small peace research institutes, institutions that have been set up. Uh, some contribute very little, uh, like the Hoover uh, Institution on War and Peace at Stanford that uh, doesn't pay much attention to world peace, it seems to me. And, uh, or the, Ameri the United States government's uh, disarmament and uh, I've forgotten the rest of it. The Arms Control Disarmament Agency seems to me to contribute little uh, directly to world peace. And my idea that uh, this could be a government function may not be a very reasonable one. It may be better to get it as far as possible away from governments. I envisaged a large place 
where there would, that would be essentially like a great university, a very great university, where uh, the staff members would be interested in world peace and would devote part of their time uh, to striving to solve the problem of eliminating war from the world and planning out a better world. And that they would also be productive scholars working on problems, perhaps basic problems in fields of science or, or problems of applied science that would help in, uh, in the question of overpopulation or damage to the environment and all the others. Some of them sort of futurists trying to plan the future. I think it would be fine if uh, the University of California, I think Harvard has a rather small group that might be described in this way. It would be fine if there were a large and effective group in the University of California. Here we have a university that I have from time to time ever since 1945. 48, when I was Eastman professor at Oxford, described as the greatest university in the world. And I still think of it in this sense. The University of California needs to continue to lead the world. And what we need more than anything else is to lead the world toward peace. Do you, do you feel that the science uh, in this post-war period has been corrupted by its... its its relationship to the government and its relation to weapons programs? No, I don't think so. There's misuse of science, in my opinion. Uh, all this weaponry stuff is a misuse of science. Uh, individual scientists have been tempted into working for the government, working on weapons either directly or indirectly. I've seen a statement that half of American scientists are involved in yes, one I saw way that or the another. Other, yeah. Yes. Well, it would be better if most of them were working for the welfare of human beings in one way or another. And there's plenty of work to be done. We haven't exhausted the uh, problems, the scientific problems. Individual scientists, I have said that I don't think that the scientists could get together, all of them, and decide that they would not work on weapons. Uh, that they would not uh, work for the government. This would mean that we were instituting an oligarchy of scientists. I think that uh, the country, the world, should be run by the people as a whole, not by any small group, not by an oligarchy of scientists. What about the, the, the problem of science in the Soviet Union and the problem of science and peace movements in the Soviet Union? It is, is, uh, I wonder if you would share your thoughts with us. One can compare, for example, your career and, and uh, your harassment by the government here with the, the situation of a Sakharov, for example, or with the, uh, the suppression recently of a, of a burgeoning peace movement there. I wonder if you would share with us yes. your views on that. Well, I was harassed, of course in a less blatant way when my passport was refused at the time that the Royal Society of London had arranged a conference of scientists, a two-day symposium on the alpha helix and depleted sheets on my ideas. Very directly to be, related to national security. I was right? to be the first speaker. And uh, 
The second speaker was my associate, Professor Corey. And then there were talks from people from many countries over the next two days. I wasn't there because my passport was with, withheld from me on the ground so far the statement was made not in the best interests of the United States. Also the statement uh, that uh, my anti-communist statements hadn't been strong enough. So uh, I didn't get to go and uh, to see the x-ray photographs taken by uh, Russell and Franklin uh, at which I would have seen if I had gone to London on that occasion. And in uh, others, I was prevented from attending various scientific congresses. And of course, I was threatened by the Internal Security Subcommittee of the Senate with a year in jail for contempt of the Senate uh, when I was being harassed by the Internal Security Subcommittee. Uh, well, uh, Things aren't so bad. I wasn't treated so badly as Russian scientists are treated. I think of Russia. The first time I went to the United States in 1957, I thought this is something like Oregon in 1907. My early memories as a boy and youth in Oregon, the simplicity of the people and the simplicity of the life. And I think the Soviet Union just lags behind us in the way that it treats individual human beings, too. Uh, we don't, aren't trying to help them to catch up. We try to hinder them in whatever way we can uh, to catch up with us. Uh, when I was invited by the Supreme Soviet last month to come to the Soviet Union to help celebrate the 60th anniversary of the founding of the Soviet Union, and I'm sure I was invited because I had been given the International Lenin Peace Prize 10 years after I got the Nobel Peace Prize. When I was invited uh, to come, I got there and I gave them a list of the people that I wanted to see, including Sakharov that I mm -hmm. wanted to talk with. I didn't get to see Sakharov. Uh, I may have, if, if if I had said I would stay 10 days, and after six days I got sort of bored, it was the 23rd of December, and I thought of my two children, two of my children and, and their spouses in California and grandchildren in California. I sort of wanted to get back. I came home four days early and gave up on, uh, I didn't see, uh, didn't go ahead with the last of my program. So uh, the, uh, there's room for a lot of improvement in the Soviet Union, just as there's room for a lot of improvement in the United States in the human rights issue. An important issue in human rights, it seems to me, is the basic human right of having a job, contributing to the work of the world, uh, feeling, uh, feeling uh, pride that you are part of the human race and are uh, doing your part in keeping the human race going, doing the work that needs to be done. And yet, here our system depends on having millions, over 10 million now, American people out of work. This is a great violation of human rights, the rights of the individual human being. So there's something wrong with our system. 
Well, there's a lot wrong with the Soviet system. In my book, No More War, in 1925, I said that I foresee that with uh, cooperation between our nations working to solve the problems of the world, these systems will change, develop, incorporating into each the better features of the other until finally, I hope, we'll have a uh, world in which uh, each human being is able to lead a good life. There aren't many people in the world who lead really good lives now. One, one final question. If, if you look back uh, at your uh, uh, involvement in, in the peace uh, movement and your, your experiences in politics, are, are there any lessons that you learned uh, about things that you would have done differently or uh, things that you think you did right that, that you think show an example for, for people presently involved in the movement? Well, one problem that my wife and I experienced in the peace movement 25 years ago in that period or 30 years ago uh, is that of uh, difficulty in cooperation. Uh, we uh, were not active members of uh, peace organizations to any very great extent. Uh, she and I worked by ourselves. We arranged in 1961 an international conference of 60 scientists from 15 countries in Oslo to discuss the issue of uh, spread of nuclear weapons. It was a conference against the spread of nuclear weapons. We got out a, a good report giving the reasons for this. And uh, I was pleased that President Kennedy again seemed to have, me to have cribbed from this report when he gave his speech against the spread of nuclear weapons. We included in this statement, which was signed by all 60 scientists, a statement that loyalty to one's own nation is not enough. We now need to be loyal to the human race as a whole. Uh, I was afraid when this statement was written that the three people from the Soviet Union and perhaps others, the two or three others from behind the Iron Curtain wouldn't sign this statement. But they did sign this statement that we need to have loyalty to the world as a whole. Patriotism is not enough. Well, uh, not only patriotism, but anti-communism caused trouble in the peace movement. We went to a peace movement in Oxford where my wife and I represented ourselves. We came under our own steam with our own support as we did with many, most of these activities, such as our supporting the uh, symposium against the spread of nuclear weapons. And uh, representatives of many organizations came there. The British had invited representatives from the World Peace Council to come. The Americans refused, and they managed to prevent the uh, peace meeting in Oxford from taking place. We were there, the others were there, and uh, it was stopped. Uh, so, uh, because, and uh, there were other occasions too where it was said that uh, uh, we must be careful uh, not join together with groups that are dominated by communists or by communist sympathizers. 
Our policy was that we would sign statements that expressed what we believed, no matter who else signed the statements. When uh, Senator Hennings of uh, Missouri uh, held uh, a hearing in which he was checking on the passport office of the State Department, uh, I was called in to testify about uh, the, my passport being withheld. And the Assistant Secretary of State in charge of passport affairs was there to testify before the Senate committee. He was asked, uh, how did it happen that Professor Pauling received his passport to go in 1954 to Stockholm to get the Nobel Prize in chemistry? Uh, was, did he appeal? Was there an appeal in the Assistant Secretary of State said, well, there was a sort of self-generating appeal. Uh, and uh, uh, here, I've just got some documents from the State Department several years after I wrote in under Freedom of Information Act, uh, correspondence in which the State Department officials are discussing whether it would do more damage to the United States to refuse to let me go to get my Nobel Prize or to let me go to get it. And they decided it was better to let me go to get the Nobel Prize. Well, uh, here, uh, the fact that they uh, in, objected to my traveling uh, abroad because my anti-communist statements are not strong enough uh, indicates how important uh, this matter of being an anti-communist is. Uh, you, uh, and in the peace movement too, here we want to uh, have peace with the Soviet Union, but we don't want to talk with anyone else who wants to have peace uh, so long as we think that he is too friendly to the Soviet Union, or we don't want to talk with uh, the uh, World Peace Council, which is thought to be dominated by the Soviet Peace Committee. Uh, we gave our public lecture in Moscow to a thousand people under the auspices of the Soviet Peace Committee. Uh, but this didn't mean uh, that, uh, well, uh, to go on with Senator Hennings, uh, Senator Hennings uh, said uh, uh, your suggestion, speaking to the Assistant Secretary of the, of state that uh, the Pauling's, uh, Dr. Pauling was following the Soviet line uh, may be wrong. Perhaps the Soviets are following Dr. Pauling's line. 